Welcome to Window Gazing Podcast, the podcast where two TikTokers try to stay on the same subject during the episode. And this episode is a long time coming. It is about class and the generations. And it stems from, oh, I, you know what? I want to first say, uh, if you would like to support this podcast, we are on Patreon. We also have our website up officially. Uh, you can email us and suggest episode ideas. What I have noticed is so far, our most popular episodes are sort of capitalism adjacent. <laughs> so it's no surprise. Um and this episode is very capitalism adjacent. So uh, it stems from one of our original conversations. I don't remember what context this came out of, but I basically said to you, um, you know, I see things very age-based and generation-based. And you said to me, uh, you, I believe that you'll always be able to relate better with someone from your class rather than someone from your generation. Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah, that is what I said. Although, you know, uh, having given that some thought after the fact, sometimes those things correlate, you know, pretty strongly depending on your context. And I'm, I have to mention at the top that my wife, after I told her what the, the, subject of the podcast was she's like you need to you need to give the caveat that this is going to be a white middle class north american perspective and that you know there's a lot of intersectionality in generations that might not apply say in you know in the global south that would apply in this context which is totally fair but what it's i was going to say is yeah it's difficult it's and we can only speak from our own lived experiences um uh but that, that it is what it is but what i wanted to say is that sometimes those things intersect because obviously, and you know, I wish I had an army of statistics to back up this point, but I think the general perception is, is that if you are part of the baby boomer class or even the silent generation, um, you are automatically in a different class simply because of the virtue of the era in which you were born, i.e. the ability to buy a house at a low value and see that uh, asset accrue in value. And so, you know, it's really funny seeing members of my parents' generation who still consider themselves middle class, even lower middle class in some aspects, but own real estate, especially where I'm from in Toronto, that they probably purchased in the late 90s for like $100,000 and are now worth over a million dollars. And they still don't can't perceive of themselves as millionaires. So I think as much as I agree, I think that class identification is probably more meaningful to people than uh, generational gaps. Sometimes those you things a line. I'm nodding heavily for the listeners. Um, <laughs> you brought up one of the initial points that I was going to bring up if you didn't, which is in some ways, class and generation are the same thing because we can make predictions about what class you're in based on what generation you're in. And to some effect that has to do with uh, wealth accumulation over the lifetime. But uh, I... I think we're going to look back on this 40 years from now and say uh, there was not much upward mobility for those born into certain generations. And so they kind of stayed in the same classes. Um, would you, so I want a definition of class, first of all. And do you think the same classes exist in the US as exist in Canada? 
That is a really hard question. <laughs> I feel like I need to have a PhD to answer that question. I mean, yeah, I mean, the definition of class is sometimes a moving target, right? Like if you speak to a hardcore Marxist, they'll say, well, there's just the the workers and there's the proletariat and there's the bourgeoisie and that's it. So there's the ownership class and the working class. And actually, I see this come up sometimes in like very niche communistic TikToks where they're like, you know, you shouldn't attack wealthy doctors or wealthy professionals because they're technically part of the working class. You should attack the capitalists, right? Uh, but I think most people colloquially wouldn't agree with that. And they would say, well, I, I would de define class by tax bracket, right? And you mentioned the difference between Canada and the United States. Well, I think our tax brackets differ significantly. Um, and actually, even here in Canada, they differ from province to province. So mm. I think it's important. I'm not, I'm going to, this is my way of hedging out of this question and saying, I can't give a rigid definition of class, but I, you know, I tend, it, it tends to depend on context, right? But I think generally what we're talking about to make this really simple is people who have uh, significantly higher than the median uh, wage or income, right? For, for the purposes of this conversation, um, because there's no way that like my friend's mom who owns like a $3 million property, who's a retired teacher, I will not call her a capitalist or, or, or a bourgeoisie, but she is definitely in a much higher, um, you know, class echelon that I would consider myself to be in. Um, so that's my weaselly, uh, mealy mouthed answer to that question. I have a difficult time defining class in my mind, because there's a few different ways we could look at it. We could look at it. Um, how do you live day to day? Do you live paycheck to paycheck? In some contexts, we would like to call that um, not well off. However, there are many rich people in uh, the US at least, who live sort of hand to mouth, who also live in mansions, who actually do live paycheck to paycheck, who are in a lot of debt. And when I look at that lifestyle, I feel to some extent, I, I don't quite, un I don't know if there have always been those people. I feel that our culture wants to tell us that in the past, the rich people were rich and they always had money in the bank and they lived in big mansions and they had settled grounded lives. And now the rich people are sort of living paycheck to paycheck and everything is mortgaged. And even if they own like a private jet, they don't own it. And there's a weird um, ungroundedness to riches that seems like they could be taken away at any time these days versus the old rich people who seemed like it was generational wealth and it could sort of be passed down. Maybe I'm talking about the difference between wealth and rich, which Chris Rock talks about um, mm. in his uh, comedy like 15 years ago. Um, so I struggle with that because I think there are a lot of rich people, upper class people who actually live the same way that poor people do. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's really funny you mentioned that because my own family story sort of is a really good case study of like how these things can get complicated because technically my dad is descended from old money, right? Like, uh, and I, and like in a Canadian context, uh, it's they're even more bourgeois because there were rich Anglophones who lived in Montreal and there's a lot of like, you know, Anglo, Francophone uh you know, culture clash there. That's definitely along class lines. But the what thing is, is my, oh, sorry, what is, ahead. what is Anglophone or Francophone? Is that speaking to language? 
Yeah, so Anglophone is a, sorry, an English speaker and a Francophone is a French speaker. These are terms mm -hmm. we like grow up understanding in Canada. So I take them for granted, I guess. Um, but all that is to say, so so my dad's descended from old money, but my grandfather uh, was very bad in investments and lost basically the the whatever remaining amount of the family fortune there was. And we're still, although my dad had the privilege of having a law education, he decided that he would pursue the priesthood, which is not not exactly a high paying gig. So my dad went from culturally what would be considered very bourgeois uh, environment to having no money whatsoever. But then it gets even more complicated because uh, even though he's, I think he's an example of what you're talking about, which is someone who uh, on paper looks wealthy because he owns a, a house in, in a part of Ontario that's very, very popular right now. So he has a very, you know, very uh, valuable asset. Um, he's, you know, he has a significant amount of personal debt and is not taking in a huge amount of income. Um, you know, he's a retired Anglican priest, right? So this is where these individual stories complicate this picture a little bit, you know, but just going back a little bit, I think for the purposes of like what we talk about when we talk about class on TikTok, I really think what it means for most people is like, if shit hits the fan, how much in trouble are you going to be, right? Yeah. So Will you have to file bankruptcy? Is there a bank of mom and dad there to help you? Uh, is there a house that if you absolutely had to, you could sell and pay off your debt and move and change your circumstances? Do you have the uh, sort of uh, value of, a, of a, a master's degree or a PhD that if everything all else fails, you have this, this sort of cultural asset? You know what I mean? So I think this is what people talk about when they talk about class. It's not necessarily, are you house rich or house poor? It's like, if things go really haywire in your life, how quickly are you not going to be able to cope? You know, how quickly are you going to be out on the street? And so I think I, that would probably be a useful definition of class. I really like that measuring tool because it is speaking to kind of where my brain was going next, which is class systems have never entirely been based on money. I think the U.S. would like to say that our class, our classes are all based on money and never based on race or privilege or geographical location. And what you're describing is how exposed are you to uh, the negative effects around you? I think that's a wonderful measuring tool um, rather than absolute amount of wealth. So uh, the other thing that comes to my mind is like the uh, peers that I have in my life who I see as being higher class than me, their parents can pay for their college. Their parents can buy them a house. Their parents can buy them a car and um, basically set them up in life. They They have a monopoly bank and they're able to start the game fairly. Uh, in a way that I I feel a lot of lower class people are not. So that's kind of our definition of classes. How exposed are you to the effects that are happening around you? How easily can you pad yourself with the various factors in your life, not only your money, but your privilege? Um, and now a, gen a definition for generation. Yeah. Uh, so I have really cool... Um, generational divides in my family because each generation is of each generation. So I have silent generation, uh, great grandparents, uh, baby boomer, 
grandparents, Gen X parents, and then I'm a millennial. And if I had followed the lineage, I would have been having kids in like 2010. So right, I would have, right. yeah. So everybody had kids in their twenties for various different reasons. Um, so for me, boomers were born around, uh, you know, early 1940s and some estimates would say till 1964, I will say in vibe, anybody born in the sixties feels Gen X. They feel spiritually Gen X to me. Yeah. I would say that. Right. Like to me, it's like, could you have gone to Woodstock is like my mental definition of what a boomer would be, you know? Yeah. and that can go both ways, right? Because my parents are members of the silent generation. And by by the time Woodstock happened, it would be like me in my mid-30s with small kids going to uh, going to like Coachella or Coachella, something. Coachella, yeah. Yeah, you know, not that that couldn't happen, but it just wouldn't be, wouldn't be the norm. Um, it's interesting because I think about this baby boomer question. And... Uh, I'm uh, so I'm a I'm a member I'm a, I guess like a I'm an exennials we've talked about this before I'm like on yeah the so Gen X I think of Gen X as like basically early 1960s up to 1980 and I have dated a lot in the like 1978 to like 1983 range for whatever reason I date a lot in that age range and mm-hmm. I can tell you like it's all different sorts of people they they fall in different areas I think you fall a bit more Gen X than you've then you fall millennial and you lean on your millennial heritage when you need to for like uh rhetorical reasons <laughs> yeah i mean i i definitely feel more akin to gen x because i feel like i was i think one of the things that gen x like prides themselves on is that they were like early adopters of the internet like pre even free browser internet in some cases and i definitely feel like i was in that category so that's where i feel most at home uh, generation generationally speaking but there are some stuff about like you know like lawn darts and things like getting killed in the 70s like th- that are not really part of my experience at all so yeah um uh but what I was gonna say is that's what's really interesting is like boomers are this larger than life you know presence in American culture and it's what's interesting is that I'm in an age group where I would say the vast majority of my friends we all have parents who are members of the silent generation. And so mm. I actually personally don't even know that many actual honest to God baby boomers, right? Mm. Um, so I'm talking about like the very classic, like was probably 18 or 19 around Woodstock, uh, grew up, um, became an adult in the 70s and then sort of became one of these professionals in the 80s and voted for Reagan or I guess in Canada would be like voting for Brian Mulroney as prime minister. So like it's chewing, you know, like the big chill kind of thing where coming to terms with like, you know, all of that narrative about the baby boomer generation is like completely absent from my lived experience because uh, all of my, what I would consider my generate, like my parents' generation would be silent generation. So these are kids who are born literally after the end or even during just close to the end of World War II, um, which is, I think, an entirely different cultural experience to the baby boomers. Mm-hmm just to bring it back to defining the generations millennials are often defined uh like somewhere in the early 80s i like to just say 1980 up to 2000 that seems fine to me my sister was born in 1998 she feels a little bit uh more zennial sometimes but she's a millennial uh 
I don't know where Gen Z is supposed to be. I think they usually say 2000 to somewhere in the 2010s, but I know that we're already on Gen Alpha, so that would make Gen Z a pretty small generation. Yeah, my shorthand is always like, if you have an a, like a semi-adult or even adolescent memory of the events of 9-11, you are not Gen Z. Uh, if 9-11 isn't like an abstract historical event that you know happened when you were a kid, kind of like for me would be like, you know, I guess like the Challenger explosion or something or like, I don't know, you know, like to me, that's like the 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 shorthand I use to define Gen Z. Um, I just want to say, just me quickly mention my favorite name for Gen Z, which is Zoomers. I don't know why. I just <laughs> love it when people call them Zoomers. Um, which is really distracting for me because... Uh, this very well-known media mogul here in Canada, Moses Neimer, who started this television station in Toronto, he started a magazine aimed at busy and like busy baby boomers and he called it Zoomer. So anytime I hear Zoomer, I still think of baby boomer who's like active. I don't think of ah! Gen Z or, you know, so anyway, it's funny. Um, and then Gen Alpha, I don't know when it starts, but we're already well into the babies being born in Gen Alpha. So maybe we say like 2015 on or something. Yeah, I would say my kids are both Gen Alpha. Interesting. Uh, so listeners, whatever you'd like to define that as in your mind, go ahead and do it. Uh, yeah. So let me just look here. So if the argument is that we're more likely to relate to someone in our own class than someone in our generation. Um, that means that when we are relating with people of any age within our class, there are common attitudes that we will have. I tried my best to think about the things that I open up to people about. And the first thing that I realized is, hmm, Usually when I'm opening up to someone or trying to relate to someone, they are both my age and my class. So mm -hmm. it is hard for me to parse those two things a lot of the time. Um, what are the attitudes that you think are really different in people of different classes? Well, I mean, it's this is a really context heavy question right like especially I mean we're talking as a Canadian and American here so it might even mean something different here than it means you know but I can get you know a shorthand example is like you know I'm one of these weirdos who I've just because of my life circumstances all of my friends are roughly around my age right but in that spectrum there's quite a different experience of like class right so um, I have friends who are my age who uh, still rent, who still have, you know, hourly wage jobs as opposed to salary jobs, uh, didn't even, you know, graduate university or even attend university. And there is a pretty significant gulf in just how we understand the meaning of security, uh, how we understand what it means to get by in like a big city, uh, what it means to, you know, deal with buying groceries during inflation then the friends that I grew up with who for example you know were smart enough or at least had enough parental assistance to buy a condo in like 2005 and then flip that up to a house and then flip that up to a bigger house you know what I mean and then also went to university and also had you know you know what I mean like so um and I would say the gulf in personal experience and understanding and sympathy and empathy between those two groups 
and this is not to like chastise people. It's it's absolutely possible. And there's like tons of people on TikTok, for example, to be a member of like a wealthier class and and have incredibly strong empathy for um, people who've experienced poverty. But unless you've actually lived that yourself or even currently live it yourself, it's just not the same. It's just not the same thing. So this is like, this is a very broad strokes definition, but but that would be that would be how I would define it. Yeah, it's interesting you speak immediately to empathy. Um, that's what was coming up for me too. And I'm going to attempt to understand where that's coming from. I don't know how well I will do, but it seems to me when I talk to rich people, higher class people, they are more nonchalant about money and finances. They seem to believe that they are easy. So there's like this... Um, there's this missing empathy around how hard it is to live and survive. And it just seems like they're like, I mean, just have money, you know, like there is, there's, there's this fundamental naivete and certain spiritual communities will attribute that to why people have money and why people don't have money. They'll say, well, rich people just have an abundance mindset. They just believe that money is easy and money is abundant and it is for them. Uh, and poor people have a poverty mindset and they just believe that money is hard to get and that they will never be okay. And it's sort of like a chicken and an egg situation. Um, and it seems to lead, uh, you know, like does the attitude come from the circumstances or do the circumstances come from the attitude um, so that could be debated all day but I think the result is that it produces a person who just goes like oh we'll just make money oh well like yeah. just have a house you don't have a house like ha just have one um, like there's a missing uh, difficulty understanding um and I think that that lack of empathy touches a lot of different areas and can impede our relating to people. Um, but I can't think of many other topics that are are truly affected by class as I can with things that are, are truly affected by generation. I can think of tons of issues where if I know your generation, I have a pretty good idea of where you're going to be uh ideologically but those things mm -hmm. i can't do the same thing for class i can't say well if you're a rich person i think that you're gonna feel this way about this it's much more all over the place i think yeah to some degree but then i find like even the most ardent you know liberal wealthy person still it, it's i still will discover things that they're shocked to to find out about how poor people live like for example like how expensive it is to be poor what it means to like have to rely like as a as a wealthy liberal i'll use an american example for our american audience but like you know you watch someone like katie porter grill you know an insurance person about payday loans and the incredibly expensive apr and a wealthy liberal could watch that and be like how could you ever take out a loan from these people with the interest rate being what it is and you assume that the person in poverty isn't aware of the cost of interest, right? You assume that they're being hoodwinked in some way, that they're, oh, they're poor, they're uneducated, they don't know. But the reality is they do know. They absolutely do know. They know the consequences of not paying those loans, but they literally don't have another choice 
this is just because of the bare fact of being a poor, they're constantly making these trade-offs, right? And it's like, it's the, just as the same as like the trade-off between, all right, do I use the last $20 I have to pay for gas to go to my job? Or do I use it in order to get groceries to feed my kids? And if I have to make that choice, what does that mean? And even the most bleeding heart liberal person, sometimes if they're in a higher tax bracket, they just don't understand what's involved, right? It's the same thing, you know, um, you know, you see this in a lot of benevolent liberal policies about how poor people are. Well, they just need better education. They need business training. They need skills. But what they don't understand is that uh, poor, the working class, the working poor are some of the most like industrious, efficient people in the, in the United States and Canada, right? Because these are people who are, uh, they are used to like juggling bills, knowing which bills like are going to shut off first before other bills. They are used to um, figuring out exactly the lowest bare minimum means they can use to get by. And they are extremely good at hustling um, for whatever income they have. They sometimes work multiple jobs. Um, I mentioned this on a TikTok this morning, but if you want a great example, there's this you know documentary I've been watching on HBO about called telemarketers, which is like the lowest of the low class people. And you see how good these people are at hustling money because their entire livelihood and their ability to survive um, depends on their industriousness in this area. And even like well-to-do wealthier people who think they know how poverty works have no understanding of what it's actually like and how incredibly intelligent and industrious and hardworking poor people are. Uh, but that they're in, like a victim of circumstances that are entirely 100% beyond their control, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, I think the higher class you are, the more that you believe in the merit-based system that we've been set up in, because like what is just leaking from what you just said of the like, oh, they must be uneducated. You could boil that down to more colloquial language to say, Oh, they must just be dumb. Yeah, they're oh, just dumb. Okay, they're just dumb. They're just like, we have to get them up to speed. We need to make them smarter. If they were smarter, then they would be richer. And yeah. the thing that we're always trying to say is like, no, it doesn't matter your merits. It doesn't matter your abilities. They will always be superseded by the system in which you live. Um but I would also say that um, certain generations have that view of life and certain ones have less of it. I think the baby boomers are very merit-based. I'm not exactly sure why. I think a lot of it was that um, the merit system worked better when they were coming up. So they just yeah. kind of like, I don't understand how you can't just bootstrap your way up because I did, and I don't understand how you could not be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, um, this is a really this is a really good point because you mentioned like people assume poor people are dumb, but the other thing they assume is that poor people don't play by the quote unquote rules, right? So you know mm. uh, they don't uh, they don't know how to speak professionally in a in a in a mm -hmm. in a job environment. Uh, they, they use drugs and alcohol, you know, they, they're not playing by the rules of society. And that's interesting. And I, and I think that's also another assumption that even benign liberals often have about, about, um, the poor is like, well, if they just, if, and you see this all the time, you see it on like, you know, um, you know, local news stories about 
poor kids who did well because they they you know went to the science fair and they where they started like their own business and they're they're following the rules they're playing the game the way it's supposed to be played and if poor people could just play the game then they would they would be just like us middle class or upper middle class people when in fact they don't know that the barriers to the poor of like transcending class are so much stronger now than they ever have been that playing by the rules doesn't really even make a difference anymore and I actually do so. So speaking to your point about the generation gap, that's a hundred percent true, right? And that, there's voluminous statistics to show that, like that you could get a job without a university education that would pay you a much higher living wage in the 1960s than you can today. That the cost of a house in the 1970s, even when you calculate high end high interest rates, um, uh, was only four times, you know, your your average income, whereas opposed to today, it's like something like 10, 10 times or more. Um, so, so this is where generation and class definitely bleed over into each other because, uh, someone who grew up again in the 1960s and seventies, uh, they're growing up in an environment that is just completely alien to the one that we live in today. And it, and it's also, an, and this is what I was thinking about the other day, and I meant to do a TikTok on this and I didn't do it. Um, which is the other thing that people forget is the internet also kind of messed a whole bunch of things up. And part mm -hmm. of what they messed, the internet messed up is there used to be an unspoken system of networking in any job. So even if you were just some guy who was really talented, but you didn't have much of a CV, you didn't have a university education, but you someone gave you a shot. They gave you an entry-level position. They gave you an internship, whatever. Um, companies used to be far more about word of mouth and they would be like, all right, this guy, he's good. He should be promoted. And someone who didn't have a lot of background uh, who maybe came from a poor family could, in theory, move up the ladder that way. And I think that was a much more real thing. Whereas now, even for entry-level jobs, because of the internet, that can all be um, uh, sort of mechanized, I guess. And so you now have like artificial intelligence readers that just scan CVs, no one's reading them. And they just, you know, they just pick a bunch and it's all at random. They might not even live near the company necessarily. And so the whole idea of like word of mouth and someone giving you a shot, that whole model has kind of started to disintegrate. Anyway, sorry for that long tangent. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, my my boomer grandfather who passed away at the age of 60 because he was stressed out his whole life. Um, <laughs> he uh, was an accountant with only a high school degree. He worked at the American Cancer Society almost his entire career. And by the end, he was in the boardrooms. He was one of their top accountants. He didn't have a college degree. Um, my other grandpa um, is rich um, by my standards and has owned a, owned a business for a long time. He doesn't have a college degree either. And both of my grandmas never worked. Um, and so I just, I just think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, and, and people forget too that like the whole people assume that the idea of like a culture of corporate layoffs and like this round of layoffs thing to make the bot, like to reach people think this has like been a thing in existence since, since time immemorial. And that's just not true. Like the whole culture of layoffs really started to take off in the 1980s uh, under the, you know, the Reagan years, like this idea that this was always a thing in a corporate environment is just false. Right. So this is a whole other thing. This idea that you don't have a cradle to grave job anymore. That's a relatively new phenomenon, um, and you know, in terms of American history. In ways, it is really positive, And in ways, it's really negative. It's really negative because we have no backup system of health care to fill in for people, for everybody essentially being 
independent contractors right now. Everybody has like two part-time jobs. Like that's where we're heading. And they're completely different jobs for some reason. Uh, a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the one saving grace of being Canadian is that your health. I mean, we do have health benefits through jobs, but it's mostly like top ups and things like eyesight and dental. Um, but the idea of like, oh God, I have a hernia or I have a heart problem and that you would need your job to to pay your hospital bills is thankfully something we don't have here. But at the same time, the culture of layoffs still exists here. And the idea that you can somehow retire in your 1960s is almost now a quaint. Yeah. I said 1960s. In your 60s is kind of a quaint concept here now as well. And the way our healthcare I, system is going, you know, might get bad too. So this is, we're going off topic, but I love this, <laughs> what we're talking about. I don't even know what you would topic this, what you would call this topic, but um, I, I actually love the fact that we, I mostly love the fact that we're going away from, um, cradle to grave jobs. I think that it gives people a lot more freedom. Um, I saw that earlier, it, early in my freelancing career, I was like, oh, people are getting stuck at jobs because they need healthcare. I'm going to remove myself from that equation by paying monthly for my healthcare outside of my job that way I can change jobs whenever I want I do not want to be prevented from changing jobs ever because of my health care I just won't do it um subsequently I've paid a lot in health insurance premiums um there's an attitude shift and the first attitude shift was like the company doesn't owe you anything whereas mm. in the past it was like the company owes you some respect and humanity and continuation of like security in your life and your family um, and less and less and less. So there is less loyalty on both sides and uh, people from my generation are not giving extra effort anymore. And we see it as being dumb that anybody would give extra effort to these companies that have no um, respect, like they would just replace you, lay you off, et cetera. And it's funny because I have had to apply for jobs the last um, month because I'm transitioning heavily from my freelancing marketing stuff into like, oh, again, having to like appear to somebody and be like hireable. I have no idea how to do this anymore. And it's very different. And one of the big differences from when I was applying to jobs last in the early 2010s uh, is that I feel employers are not vetting people very much. I feel like mm. the the hiring process is like, are you a person? Oh, okay, you're hired. Um, my roommate worked for Home Depot for a very short period of time. They don't even have an interview process. You just enter your social security number and they schedule you for training. Um really fascinating to me and my roommate did not stay at stayed at that job for like three weeks and was like oh I got hired at a hair salon whatever uh yeah. and you know it's just such a different uh a different perspective and way of treating people but I kind of love it because I feel like I'm under less stress test initially to some degree like I'm under less uh obligation to be a good worker they're just like, are you a worker? Okay, we're gonna like throw you in and see if you float or whatever. And I'm like, fine, it's a completely impersonal process. I have no loyalty to you at all. I barely know the names of the people, you know, it's just very impersonal. Um, 
Yeah, but I mean, this is the this is the difference, right? Because if I, it depends on the job, and it depends on your context, and it depends on your level of personal security. Like one thing that always bugs me is like in in, in TV shows, a, a person will quit their job or lose their job, and they'll just be like, "What am I? What job am I going to do next?" And there's no, like the uh, concern about money is like not, almost sometimes not even mentioned. Like maybe as a secondhand thing, but it's just like assumed that someone all will, you know, this, this is crushing for me on a personal level, but the idea that I'm my financial security and that of my family is threatened is never brought up. Whereas like, that's the reality for so many people. It's like, and that's what, you know, people question like, why do people, so many people stay at jobs that are just so horrible? And it's because there's just no security. They can't, they can't even take an income break long enough from the job that they're stuck with in order to even contemplate what it would be to, to take another job, right? Um, I just want to go back on something because you were talking about we're getting away from our subject of conversation, but I really do think this is entrenched in, in the generational gap. And one thing that I think it's really worth pointing out is that our current situation where, as you mentioned, there's a lot less loyalty from companies and, and people will jump from job to job and there's way less security and unions are weak. What's interesting is like um, boomers assume that their job environment is the norm when in fact... I think that you'll see historically, like if they look back 50 years from now, 100 years from now, the the sort of 1950s to 1990s era will be seen, and maybe 1940s too, will be seen as a sort of Pax Romana, this like strange sort of period of like relatively class uh, calm, you know, maybe like mollified by the, the reality of the Cold War or something. But it was this like one time era. And I actually think the Cold War and talking about it in this context is very important because this idea that corporations were somehow more benign or that this 90% tax rate for rich people was somehow because Republicans were more enlightened, it's nonsense. Like everything that the domestic government did in the US and Europe was in some part to prevent workers from radicalizing because they were mm. scared of communism. Mm. And so all of the good things that we think about in terms of the baby boomer age, which is ironic for a generation that hates communists, was came out of the fact that the US was actively trying to mollify workers. And this started in the 1930s to prevent them from becoming communists, right? And uh, so I like, feel, yeah, I feel so much like we are repeating history right now. And I don't know enough of history to know where we're at, but I know we were doing a lot of union busting like around the time we had uh, the 1929 like financial crisis and we've had a lot of financial crisis recently. And I'm like, these things seem related. I feel like we're in the, like the pre-World War II era again, somehow. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason they call it the Gilded Age because that, I mean, that's always what they reference when they reference the current class inequality. And uh, it absolutely was like that. Like there was no regulation. And um, I can't remember his name. There's a, a guy named Michael on TikTok who does all these incredible TikToks about, you know, the history of labor incidents and worker strikes. And, and it's very clear that like workers had far fewer protections uh, and uh, the, the inequality between class was much more stark at the turn of the 19th century and into the 20th than it was at We're any time, you know, in the 1930s onward. I don't know if this is like internet propaganda, but I keep saying stuff about child labor laws too. And yeah. I'm like, are we really returning to child labor? Like this is 19th century stuff like it's I don't know seems yeah. so backward yeah well I mean uh you know I don't I don't want to get like workers of the world unite here but the thing is like at some point uh 
you know, our current, we're sort of in this weird detente, right? Where we absolutely know that younger generations, maybe this is what we should segue into is talking about my own view is that I feel like the current Gen Alpha, Gen Z are much more, and people like to talk about, oh, they're really conservative. Well, just, just as a 42 year old, the stuff that I hear, you know, 20 somethings talk about, especially early 20 somethings talk about now are far more radical than they ever were when I was that age. Um, and I feel like at some point we're going to move past this weird social media detente where we talk about these ideas, but there's no real organization around them. And at some point, someone is going to emerge from this. There's going to be some sort of organization and things are going to change in some way. And we may see some, some sort of return to the radical radicalism of the sixties, for example. Um, but before that happens, like, I think there's a real feeling in the U S that the uh, the ownership class knows what they're doing is is cause stirring resentment and they just don't care. It's kind of like the turn of the century because they have all the power. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how history repeats itself, hopefully not in uh, bloodshed. I agree that the younger generations are more liberal. Uh, have we ever seen a younger generation that is less liberal than their parents i feel like they it's always supposed to go this way the younger generation is always supposed to be more open-minded they're definitely more socially open-minded they're also a lot less binary almost on almost every issue you will see them represent a range of um of inputs rather than a yes or a no so you could say that about gender you could say that about health outcomes. Um, I think that we're coming more to a place of like, there is not mentally unhealthy or mentally healthy. There is like a whole ass range of stuff that's going on there. Um, and there's just a whole lot less boxes for everything. Um, and it's interesting. In some ways, the younger generation is more individualistic, but at the same time, idealistic about community and about uh, collaboration. There was much more membership in community, uh, at least uh, local organizations like the um, Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club. Um, and Elks. maybe the Elks. Yeah, mm. maybe now you could say uh, the membership is just like online membership in communities, but definitely people from my grandparents' generation showed up for their community more often. My grandpa was on the school board um, for many, many years of the little uh, elementary school that I went to. He just gave his time for free. I don't see younger people doing that. Maybe that's just like, well, when people are young, they're working really hard and they're not focused on community involvement or engagement. Um I read the book Bowling Alone, um, which is another book in sort of the genre of very boring books that are very important to read. Uh, yeah. Another book like that is um, Manufacturing Consent, another boring book yeah, yeah. that's important. Um, but he talked a lot about uh, the younger generations being commun community disengaged. Uh, and I, I just think that our communities have become global and the internet has really uh, thrown a wrench in that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you're right about the sort of mess of contradictions piece because 
you know, there's this there's sort of a very rich irony to all these individual TikTokers coming on a platform of individual accounts talking about the importance of community. And these are probably the same people who, as you say, they're probably not members of these organizations. They're not going to their local DSA. They're just, they just know intuitively that community is like, uh, the idea of taking care of each other in a communal way is like a much more vital thing. Or, you know, the, and I've talked about this before is, um, I think something that's really shifted is, and this was not the case when I was younger in the 80s and 90s, where it's just now assumed even by the left and the right that wealth inequality is per se bad, that it is bad that there is a billionaire ownership class. It's just the way that the Republican Party frames that wealth, you know, hint, hint, dog whistle, anti-Semitism um, and other things, and the way that the left frames that inequality are different, right? Um, and so now the discourse is less about is wealth is it bad to have wealth? And it's more about um, uh, how do we express that wealth is not just about wealthy elites in New York or Hollywood. Uh, it's actually about people who own the means of production. You know what I mean? It's like, even the idea of having that debate didn't exist when I was a younger person. So mm -hmm. so that's what I mean by they're much more radical. It's like, I feel like the, it's now completely mainstream on both sides of the political spectrum to condemn extreme wealth inequality. And that definitely was not the case when I was growing up. So, so things are definitely changing despite this mess of contradictions. And I think, you know, we've talked about this as well as like, I think younger people are much more prone to like, they might be very, very left on economic issues, but then they also might believe that the the moon landing was a hoax and the earth is flat and the public health is a, is a you know, funded by Pfizer to, to inject us with like tracking devices. You know what I mean? Like, that that thinking is much more prevalent. And you also mentioned Manufacturing Consent. And I love that book, but that book almost feels dated now because um, uh, there is no center now in media and mass media and media consumption. It's like a million different shards of glass, you know, a million different spectrums of light on, on you, you know, any view that you could possibly want to subscribe to, you can find it online somewhere. So, so I think the circumstances have, have changed a lot in that vein. And so as much as I, I believe what I said that I think younger people are much more radical. I agree with you. It's it is there is a mess of contradictions there, and this is why I think someone, some sort of leader coming out of this, and some sort of organizational principle coming out of this will will help move all of this forward somehow. The I don't know why this came up for me when you were just talking, but I was thinking about how um, you know wealth inequality differences in class we inherently process that as a negative thing, that it is negative for some people to have more and for some people to have less and for um, for class to exist, that that is kind of bad. It feels emotionally bad. Um, when you talk about the, the aspects of uh, generation, of age, those are sort of inherently different. And I don't think that we necessarily process them as bad overall. Oh, it's bad to be old and good to be young. Maybe some yeah. people. Um, but there's much more nuance there. There's much more give in saying, well, it's, a po it's positive to be old. It's positive to have some life experience. It's positive to have wisdom. And so I think when we relate to each other generationally, there's more open um, openness to be accepting of people to feel community with people um when we're relating across class we're more likely to feel like we're too different from someone in a, in a bad way 
I've had a lot of interesting experiences with class as I have um, relinquished my car transportation. We talked about this on the walkable cities episode. I think one of the reasons we haven't embraced uh, widespread um, public transportation is because of proximity to poor people. People don't want to sit on a bus with people who are of a different class and they won't say it like that. They'll say that people stink, that people are in wheelchairs, that people are um, loud and incorrigible or whatever they say, similar to kind of what you were saying, um, privileged leftists would say about the poor. Oh, they wear the wrong clothes. Oh, they say the wrong things. They're tacky, whatever it is. It's the same thing. People don't want to sit next to someone like that and they don't want to confront their negative opinions about that um and that's that almost feels like shadow work to me and it absolutely lives in me like there was something that was taught to me about the way that I needed to present myself to other people in order to be respected and so on some level if I see someone who is not doing what I have been taught to do in order to be perceived a certain positive way then I'm uncomfortable with that because I'm embarrassed for them um it is hard is it to go ahead well I was just gonna say I think you've touched on something really important uh and I think this applies much more to class than than generational divides, which is that um, I, you know, I don't want to get too too much into psychology because it's not really my wheelhouse. But there is definitely a sense of people who really resent poor people. There's a projection there. There's a projection of a vulnerable part of themselves, uh, a part of themselves that they feel is like uh, deviant or didn't follow the rules or you know it didn't work hard enough, and they project that image onto poor people because they perceive the, the causes of their poverty in a particular way, right? That's probably not really based in reality. And so I honestly, because when I see this online, when I see there's like a definite hatred of the poor that's like functionally active in society. You see it in inner cities when, you know, people like in Toronto, for example, people lived in this park in, in the downtown Trinity Bellwoods. And these are people who probably vote for the left, farthest leftist party in Ontario, the NDP. They're calling the city of Toronto complaining about homeless people living in Trinity Bellwoods Park. Um, and, you know, any crime that happens in around their neighborhood, they immediately assume is associated with the people living in, in tent, tents. And, uh, and it's again, I feel like it's this weird projection of some part of themselves that they don't like, that they project like this vulnerability or this sense of personal responsibility for their you know, this is like capitalist ingrained propaganda that your entire livelihood, your ability to make money is entirely a, a measure of your character or your your ability to work hard and, and your dedication. And so, of course, if a poor person is in the circumstances that they are, it's because they don't have those things, you know. So I'm really glad you talked about that. Um, anyway, yeah, sorry. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. And again, we're ending up back in the merit-based system of if I just work hard enough. And you're also implying, which I like, is like, if I just follow the rules enough, then I will be uh, okay. And the further down you go in society, the less rule following there seems to be. Although I would argue that 
the most rule following is happening in the middle class. And then there's less rule following as you exit the bell curve on either yeah. direction, um, which I is think so that's a really wise observation, really wise observation. And the thing is with, the, with, I think what people don't understand who are in the middle class is they'll see the story of like the kid who studies really hard and they get a scholarship to go to an Ivy league school and then they get their career going. And that's the model of like upward mobility they have in their head but they don't understand about survivorship bias. And for every one person who manages to get lucky that way, there's like hundreds of thousands of kids who followed the rules, who did all the things they were supposed to do and they just didn't get anywhere and they didn't get anywhere very soon in life. And so what's the point, you know? And I think if you see that as your lived experience long enough, you're not gonna really care. And it's the same at like the upper echelon, as you mentioned, right? Like if, if you're like at a, at a sort of corporation and you have a chance to move up the corporate ladder, but you see the people in front of you aren't obeying any sort of sense of decorum or ethics in their job. Uh, why are you going to care? Like, uh, interesting, coincidentally enough, I just watched that great Steven Soderbergh movie, The Informant with Matt Damon, who plays this like corporate scientist at, at, a, at a biochem firm. And he basically, you know, he, he does the right thing. He follows the rules by telling the FBI that his company is colluding to fix fixed prices but at the same time he himself doesn't follow any of the rules because he embezzles like tens or like nine million dollars from his own company right so so I, I think that idea of the bell curve in the around the middle class is is dead on for sure I just I don't I yeah I just see that like middle class ethic reinforced in my life uh my boyfriend and I are both big rule followers and here in Portland, like, there's a lot of, um, just like a lot of jaywalking happening. There's a lot of like pedestrians rights people. There's, there's a lot of yielding that cars are doing. It's wonderful uh, for walkability, but we won't cross the street unless the walk symbol is on and we make fun of ourselves, but we can't walk against, like, it's so funny. And I just laugh at how much rule following we default to because it didn't used to be my way of being. I was very not a rule follower when I was an adolescent. Well, it's really funny too, because, and you get this phenomenon with like centrist Democrats in the United States and you have it here with, with the liberal party of Canada, which is like the centrist party where it's like this idea of like the rules will save us is like in, in, uh, ingrained in all their legislature, like as opposed to just giving poor people money, which is what they actually need. They'll be like, oh, well, we'll give you a tax incentive to take this community uh, tech training program to learn how to code, or we'll give you like a, a child benefit rebate or, you know, like all these like very um, prescriptive, overly like um, directive, like uh, little tidbits here and there when, when, when what poor people actually need is more money, you know what I mean? Like, it's very obvious. And uh, mm. and so, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. Again, we talk about the, the lack of empathy between classes. Well, a middle class person doesn't understand that, you know, a poor person, why wouldn't you want to learn how to code? You could become a programmer and make like hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's like we live in a great society. Don't you see that? And they just have no understanding of what it's actually like to be in those circumstances. Just one thing I want to say uh, before we move on from this is you mentioned something earlier and it got me thinking about because you're talking about there's a thing with classes not wanting to associate each other, but people don't have problems associating between generations. And it made me think that I think really when we talk about generational gaps, like when young people get angry about boomers, we're really just talking. It's just class by any other name. Right. Because mm -hmm. I don't think any sane 
millennial would have a problem with a boomer who's rented their entire life and has a minimum wage job, minimum wage job and can't get by. I don't think they would have any issue with them um, because chances are they would have great amount of sympathy for the circumstance that young people are facing right now. So mm -hmm. I really do think, and this is what I've said before, is like, as much as I enjoy generational discourse because it gets a lot of clicks and it's fun to talk about, I actually kind of think it's almost meaningless. First of all, mm -hmm. it's wildly over-reductive. Mm -hmm. um, and because class in and of itself doesn't really describe any material circumstances that have any meaning, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and so this idea of like, when people talk about getting mad at boomers, they're really just getting mad at an older generation who had access to extreme privilege that they didn't have and have no understanding what that's like, which is really just class. That's a class issue, not a, not a generational one. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Very good argument there. Um, however, I don't just have problems with uh, boomers or Gen X around money stuff. I have problems with a lot of Gen X men around misogyny, for example. Yeah, and well, there's that. Yeah, for sure. I have learned through our Barbie episode of all things and sharing the Barbie episode clips on TikTok, my own tendency to center men and men's experience. And um, I mean, there's, I'm such a cool, like layered baklava of a person because <laughs> I grew up in somewhat um, like poorer circumstances, but with quite a bit of privilege uh, as a side dish. And then like in a red county, but by blue parents. Um, and so I'm just like all over the map. And I end up a lot in like sort of traditional feminine roles and sort of my social beliefs around gender and romance, et cetera, tend to be very traditional. And um, I am seeing misogyny more and more. I'm kind of being ra radicalized by TikTok. Like TikTok has taught me a lot of critical race theory that I wish I had learned earlier uh, and it's it's showing me or mirroring for me a lot more of the attitudes that are held by older generations. Um, and there's just this, I've said this to you before, uh, you'll see uh, cishet men coming into the comments of women and saying, you're right or you're wrong. I'm mm -hmm. the authority for some reason. Yeah. Um, I was talking to my best friend, Sarah, about someone who constantly is in her DMs, who's another creator, who is like, oh my gosh, I really like this video that you did about this thing. Can you tell me about this concept? Do you think I do this? And she's like, fuck you, man. I don't want to like, it's not my job to tell you about Google it, dude, yeah. Google it. And I, it's funny, my reaction to that would be like, oh, here's all this information. Like I am more like uh, accepting and accommodating of that. I'm like, oh, a man is asking me a question. Like somewhere inside me, I'm a little bit like that. Um, but I just yeah, thought I that mean, was an interesting. You're totally right. Like the intersection of, of generation and gender is a huge thing. And like um, there is you know, it's what, what I, I remember the Barbie episode. And I, I also remember another episode where you talked about how we infantilize men. But there is something that I've noticed when I read men leaving comments on women's TikToks is that they men infantilize women. Like there's this weird tone that men have when they leave comments on women's TikToks that is very teacher-like. 
And not just because I have the wisdom that you don't have. It's like, I really appreciate this perspective. I think you should also consider, yes. know, it's very, it's, it's very subtle, uh, but it is this generational thing where um, an older man will see a younger woman on the TikTok and they immediately assume this sort of patronal father-like wise demeanor. And it, it's always like, it's cringy to me to see it, but it's like, and sometimes I get that too, but it's mostly like, um, someone who perceives themselves as like a higher station, you know, like whether or not that's class-based or generational-based or just whatever, culturally-based, I don't know. But, but you know, you get this phenomenon too of people who leave excruciatingly patronizing comments that are completely unself-aware, you know? But I think it's much, much bigger issue. So that's a whole other can of worms we could get into, uh... which is like putting all class aside. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I don't even think you have to go back that far. Like one of the things my wife and I discovered when we were watching like these early 2000s uh Judd Apatow comedies or like Judd Apatow adjacent comedies like uh 40 year old virgin or whatever is like there there's so much stuff in those movies that wouldn't appear today and not for the, the boring like oh it was we we could we could be offensive but not for any of those reasons but just because like they just come off as really it's the same way like certain data jokes just aren't funny because they're not funny anymore because society has changed and not because like like it, it's it's not like I'm not laughing at these jokes in 2003 being like damn I wish you could make these jokes today it's like oh they're just not funny anymore and so like Absolutely. that's not even that long ago that's like two decades ago you know what I mean uh, that's um, well well that's that's why I love comedy as a genre especially stand-up comedy because it has the quickest expiration date as the culture yeah. moves on so what you're describing with the Judd Apatow movies and the misogyny that is uh that time period's version of like mickey rooney in breakfast at tiffany's absolutely um that asian character um so it's kind of the same thing if you watch dr strangelove today it's still just as funny and just as relevant and like there's nothing dated about it you know what i mean yeah whereas if you watch another peter sellers movie like the party it's like very cringy you know so so there, oh, there really was something good... oh go ahead there was something about men being the authority and here's what it was um mm -hmm. if you want to find shitty ways of relating um so you'll find that this is how you can find misogyny this is how you can find racism this is also how you can find just like childhood trauma sometimes it comes up in psychology a lot just look for this and for the listeners i have my hands up by my face and I, one of my hands is higher than the other hand. So just look for that in relating. Is someone being better than the other person? Is someone putting themselves below the other person? So you'll see this in Drives Me Crazy, the TikTok accounts by uh, cishet men that are meant to constantly defend women or like, I am uh, a feminist uh ally so what they will do is this they will put themselves below women and they'll say oh my god you are a queen you are so amazing i'm just here to defend you i'm here to boost up women this is just as toxic as this it's the inverse of this and in a way it's also i am your teacher i am going to show you what's good i'm going to speak for you instead of you being able to speak for yourself which is a way of infantilizing somebody yeah, um, those accounts are just, I I skip as soon as I see like two seconds of one. And I wish someone could articulate, I don't know what it is, like a visceral response when I see it. And um, 
I don't know what it is, but I, every time I see it, it just, it just makes me gag. And it's partly, I think, as of what you mentioned, it's because why do you need to be in this space at all? You know, like I see TikToks by the hope peddler. I see people like other, like th- there's volume. You just, why don't you just like the TikToks and like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, well, you don't why need do you to have be to, in this space. Yeah. Why do you have to make your identity about feminism? That seems so strange as it, it has nothing to do with your life experience. So like, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would sympathize with an account that was like, as, as, as a man, or the, in these particular situations, my male identity, uh, you know, I've I've interrogated my male identity in the page. And I've seen stuff like that. It's actually interesting, right? Like people who like actively challenge their roles or people who've like understood that, you know, they've been behaving in a certain way that's been toxic without even a, like stuff like that is I'm really sympathetic to. This is a really good story, by the way, uh, along those lines. Um, there's a very famous uh, England goalkeeper named Neville. I think it's Neville Southall is his name. And this is like a guy who's like played football in the seventies, the most racist, sexist period of time in English culture and history you could imagine. And uh, he had this big long Twitter interaction with a friend of mine, uh, Jude, who's a documentary filmmaker originally from the Congo. And she moved to the UK and she's like, she's this great TikTok person, very far left. And like they were having this great back and forth and, and 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 this guy Neville, this big burly older English goalkeeper who played for some of the roughest teams in England, is like listening receptively and like interrogating his own attitudes and like and I, to me it's like this is what I'm interested in. Like this is the kind of thing that I would be interested in listening to. Not some guy going out there trying to like show off his like feminist bona fides. You know, uh, it's like you don't need to be in that space unless you need to be in that space. You know. Yeah. And and that's what I look for in people who are not inherently misogynistic versus people who are is like this open mindedness and this willingness to change your perspective and a um, a flexibility in um, attitude or belief and inflexibility bothers me much more in someone if even if they are espousing things that I believe to the exact degree that I believe them, that inflexibility is something I detect almost immediately in them trying to kind of win a conversation. Um, And yeah, I think uh, generationally there are much more um, like misogyny divides, racism divides uh, than there are class-wise I think if you look at the layers of class, you don't find much differences in levels of racism, levels of misogyny. What do you think? Well, this is where it gets tricky, right? And this is where we talk about intersectionality because I I think they're all connected, right? Like I take the Fred Hampton view, like, you know, the Marxist who's, uh, you know, associated with the, the Black Panther Party. And it's like his whole thing was like the the cornerstone of American racism is a tactic to essentially divide working class people against themselves and their own interests, which sounds like a vast reductionist statement. And it sounds like it's somehow dismissing the, you know, uh, pervasiveness of racism in every single aspect of cultural life, whether it's on a higher class echelon or a lower one. But at the same time, like if you look at class resentment writ large, if you look at redlining in the United States, you look at class-based laws, all of these laws are essentially to get poor white people to vote for wealthy uh, white interests. You know what I mean? Um, 
Uh, and so I, while I don't think that's the whole conversation around race, I do find the intersection of race and class is something that we still need to talk about and not be afraid to talk about because these things are vitally important. That's just my own view on that matter as a white heterosexual male is like in my forties, but. Well, yeah. it's interesting. That's where the civil rights movement ended. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's, end, it's even over yet, but uh, in the sixties, that's when Martin Luther King was about to die. He was in the process of trying to get white people more money. Like let's all poor people band together against poverty uh because yeah, he it was, was ending avowed, up there he was an avowed democratic socialist like there's no yeah. controversy in that point like that is his and you know and a lot of black activists at the time were as well because they understood that the core issue uh of, of, of segregation and black you know black disenfranchisement was 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 class was the fact that you know they've been and those things are related, right? Because like racism is what makes a lot of people poor. Like that is, you know, especially mm. the United States, right? Uh, but it certainly applies here as well. Um, so you cannot, you can't really talk about race unless you talk about class. And you certainly can't talk about class unless you're talking about race to some degree. So, the, the you know, rather than try to cleave these issues or rather than try to make one issue more important than the other, I think it's important to understand that like, if we don't address the intersection of those issues, we're not really addressing one or the other at all. I don't know why this is coming up for me now, um, but there is, there's a lot of work, some, I haven't known that many rich people. Okay. <laughs> I am very close to a person who was born uh, into very like rich circumstances by my view. And that person has worked very hard to not seem like they are from that class. They work very hard to not seem like a brat, privileged, and like so many things in their life have been built around like, I got to make sure that I feel it, like equality with other people and other people can relate to me and nobody sees me as like this rich kid. Um, mm. So I think that's a really interesting aspect because- Almost always um, being of a higher class, having more privilege divides you from people. Um, socially, it divides you from people. Logistically, it divides you from people. The richer you are, the larger your compound is, the further out people are from your physical space. And I don't know. That's one of the things that I took a lot of solace in because as I get older, I think I'm actually poorer and poorer, which is funny. Um, I'm doing it in inverse of how you're supposed to. Um, mm. And the richer I have been in my life, the more lonely I have been because I've been able to purchase my isolation. Um, I've been able to purchase my isolation into a car. I've been able to purchase my isolation into a, a one bedroom apartment versus living in a house with roommates um, in all ways, just like structural loneliness, which is really strange. Um, the like comfort and amenities of life in this country uh create loneliness and i don't know if that was like intentional and i don't know if it has a whole lot to do with um generational issues but that's been my experience like oh i don't really want to have more money because it goes against kind of what i want um but it's also oh uh... go ahead you're reminding me also that i am comfortably um, privileged 
And we can measure my privilege by how exposed I am to my actual economic circumstances. I have really kind of chosen to be poor, but I absolutely have um, family that I could go live with. I have uh, the bank of grandfather that is happy to um, lift me out of whatever economic circumstances I, I'm in. And I have chosen not to, I've chosen to be like ruggedly individualistic and file for bankruptcy. And it's silly. Um, I'm like kind of feigning poverty in a way. And uh, my ex used to say this to me that like, I don't recognize my own privilege. And at the end of the day, yes, there are people who would save me from my circumstances if I needed to. And so I can sort of like role play actually being in a lower class than I'm in. And so I don't know, I think the the measure that you identified early on of like how exposed are you um, is just a wonderful measure of class. Sorry, that was kind of a, a rant. No, I, I think uh, I think you're right. And um, uh, it's interesting you're talking about rich people being isolated. And, I, you know, I always find it funny when people say there's no class warfare. And it's like, well, then why do rich people live in gated communities? Why do they yeah. why do they hide themselves? You know, because it, it sort of assumes that like they're under threat. Right. So, yes. Uh, and um, and, you know, I was thinking you were talking about this and I was thinking when I my my experience going to university and, and I was thinking I've never you know, I, I when I when I was 15, I sang in this choir and I was with people who are twice my age. And that was really interesting. And I learned perspectives of an older generation that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten. But I didn't feel like a fish out of water. Whereas I remember when I went to university in Montreal and it was, it was strange because I grew up in Toronto my entire life. And it was the first time that I met wealthy people, my age, like really old money, wealthy people, my age from Toronto in this whole other city and a whole other context. And I remember feeling like this is a whole other side of the world. I didn't even know existed. Like these are people who don't have any, you know, any understanding of of what my circumstances were like or the circumstances that people went to high school were like. And it's not even like we were particularly bad badly off. It's just like this is a whole other echelon of wealth, you know. So um, but yeah, on the on the point about security, you know, I, it's funny, like people make fun like, why don't you just wanna why do you wanna you just should just rent? You don't you don't need to own a house. And again, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking it's it's really just like it's the idea if I have the asset, I'm I'm hedged somewhat. I'm okay. I have the security, right? Because that's the experience I have. And so my anxiety around those things is much more attached to the idea of security. And I think that that's the same for a lot of people. And mm -hmm. I think um, you know, I'm really into this writer, David Smale, and he talks about the importance of distal powers, which is powers that are well beyond our control that have a, a sort of effect on our lives that we might not even be conscious of. And I think for people in poverty and people don't have that sense of outside security that someone's going to come in and save you, it, it affects everything, whether you're consciously aware of it or not. And it affects your decisions big and small. Uh, is it worth taking this better job or trying to apply for this better? Is it worth moving or quitting? Because in the back of your head, you're running all these scenarios. If shit really goes badly, how soon am I going to be out on the street? And for some people, that's a lot quicker than others. So I guess we're bringing this conversation <laughs> to a full circle here. But but I, I, I absolutely do think that is that to me, when I think about class, that's usually the definition I have in mind. We talked about this on the work episode, too, of fundamentally not being in control of our own um, survival being always at the behest of the system that we're in. I think that's why so many people of uh, my age group, I would say, I'm I'm gonna say my age group, because I don't think it's people of my class 
all of us, I think it's my age group, we want to move to farms and have like sustainable food systems. And what I said on our episode that we talked about, I was like, when I lived in that situation, I was like, oh, the road has a bunch of wood in it from the windstorm. I can't even drive. Oh, I'm never going to be free of the damn system. Okay, I get it. I'm even out on this farm with a sustainable food system and I am, I can't even drive in the road and get to food. Um, so um, we don't have control over our well-being relatively and we have been taught to pursue it in money and in assets. I'm really um, fascinated to know this about you. It makes more sense to me why it's more important to you to own a house than it is to me. Um, it's also personality wise. I don't like having to commit to anything. So like having to sign a mortgage contract for me is like a death contract to stay in the same city for 30 years, which just sounds terrible um, mm -hmm. in general. And for you, it's kind of like, I need to like create an asset that will be the represent the physical representation of my relative security in my life. And to me, it doesn't represent that at all. So it just makes like kind of makes sense. Our ideological differences around like home ownership, because I always assumed about you that it was more about identity, that um, having owned a home as a person, you are a more successful member of society and a more respectable member of society. And I'm like, oh, well, fuck all that. Like, that doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, just thank you for that perspective, because it gives me a window into like more of who you are. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a thing, right? Like a lot of this stuff goes unspoken and you'll, you'll know someone for a long time, but there's this inner turmoil that you don't know. And and it turns out it's about, you know, it's just about, it's about relative security, you know? And it's interesting, you were talking about, you know, the generation, your generation or younger generations want to move out to the farm. And I just feel, again, when we talk about these generational differences, I feel like we're just talking about how people who are coming to, coming of age at a certain time are responding to the economic circumstances of that era. So it right. still feels like at the end of the day, it's an economics thing, right? Because what are people going to farms for? Well, they want to get off the grid because they can't afford groceries or they, they don't want to be reliant on a job that's going to destroy them mentally and physically in order to make a living. They want to be somehow self-sufficient. I will say though, in our, in my intentional community, so I live in an intentional community. We have six people who live in my house. There are some of us who come from relatively privileged backgrounds. That would be me and um, another girl who's, who I started this with. There are people who come from less privileged backgrounds. Um, I'm thinking of uh, one of our roommates who their parents are first generation immigrants. And it seems within our own house that the people who come from less well-off circumstances are more into the idea of hard work and wealth accumulation. And the people who are from less privileged are, are from uh, more privileged backgrounds are less interested in that and more interested in just like, let's go be poor on a farm, guys. Like it seems yeah. to be directly related to our level of privilege. And it's actually inverse of what you would think. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you always have to be careful not to like, I think one of the problems that a lot of more progressive people have is they put halos on every single poor person you know what I mean like like yeah. that. but you know you have to be careful of that too right because it's really just 
you're it's not about one pe group of people being inherently better than the other it's just like it again it's just like ameliorating certain circumstances that have changed how someone is thinking about the world you know so anyway i was thinking the other day i know we're kind of getting tired um I was thinking the other day about how trauma perpetuates itself in families and it can sometimes uh, unperpetuate itself. I don't know what the word is, but like get itself out of the family, the better off the family is. So trauma absolutely does run in rich families too, mm -hmm. but to some degree they can kind of hire outside help. They can kind of um, like they can have more spoons than uh, poorer people can have. And so in some ways they can like kind of get themselves out of the things that tend to perpetuate poverty, which is like having kids when you're really young, not having access to education, not being able to um, have access to the same resources. And um, it's really the level of um, self-reflectiveness that people are able to have. So like the rich families that trauma does continue to run itself in are usually people who are not willing to look at the trauma and they're not willing to tell the truth about the trauma. And actually in families where there's poverty, if people are, are able to tell the truth about what's going on emotionally, they can actually sometimes get, get through the trauma even better than the rich families. I don't know why I'm making this comparison here, but I guess it's just like mental health does not necessarily equal um, having money. Um, yeah, people who yeah, have absolutely. money can be crazy as hell and people who don't have money can be crazy as hell. And you can actually function in certain ways having a personality disorder. And in some ways we um, uh, promote and benefit those who have certain personality disorders. Um, the more detached you are from reality, usually the less money you'll be able to have. Um, we have a whole thing about like logic and reality, which is really interesting. Um, but yeah, I could talk about the merit system with um, money and mental health and stuff. But again, I'm getting off topic. Yeah, well, I mean, you're right in terms of the access to the resources that wealthy people have in terms of dealing with mental illness. But, you know, at the same time, this comes back to what we were talking about rule playing and I find, or rule following. And I sometimes find that, you know, some wealthy people, they'll deny generational trauma or they won't address it because it's like not, not on as a, as a wealthier person to be suffering those kinds of problems, you know? Um, and sometimes you'll see families that will, that do go to therapy, that do pay for expensive therapists, and yet they're still just as narcissistic and anxious. And, you know, so I, I don't think those things, uh, you know, those aren't, those aren't divided by class lines, but, uh, yeah, definitely the circumstances of say someone going through a terrible bout of anxiety when you have a $10 an hour job or a $5 an hour job or whatever are different from those, you know, if you're a CEO who has like, you know, anxious about the, the, Q4 of your company or whatever so certain types of trauma are relegated to the poorest people in society I'm thinking of uh, war trauma uh, all kinds of childhood trauma it seems to be visited pretty equally um, rich kids are tend to be neglected um, just in different ways um, I love the princess Diana story because she was very childhood neglected um, but certainly poor people uh, endure different kinds of traumas than rich people and rich people sort of get the um, the more Cadillac end of 
the range of traumas that we have um yeah but i still think like i think the root of trauma for both rich and poor is still tied in some cases to the self-perception especially when it relates to their economic status because again like a lot of trauma with like wealthy people is they assume that their station in life is because of their personal character. So if they have flaws in that character, they won't acknowledge them or they'll, they'll sort of self-medicate those flaws because they perceive they can't have them in the station of life that they're in. And similar for a person who's in poverty and dealing with alcoholism or mental illness or anxiety or all these other things, depression, is that they may not understand their, that those things are connected to a wider world that's beyond their circumstances, that they may feel they're just hard done by because of who they are, it's their fault. And at some point they're punishing themselves because they think it's their responsibility for where they are in their life. So I think those two, again, like I think this idea that you can have this nice clean line and say, well, you know, we can't talk about mental illness on class lines because that's crass because wealthy people can have mental illness too. But I do think those things are very, very strongly attached to this broad delusion that we generally have when it comes to economics, that we think we are the you know, captain of the ship, that we're masters of our fate and that our wealth is a direct reflection of our of our ingenuity or our worthiness as human beings. I think that's a a big problem, but that's probably for another podcast. I wouldn't be surprised if you uh, polled people of higher class about their relative level of mental health, their relative level of mental acuity, that they would have a much more positive view of themselves uh than people of lower station and it's kind of like well i'm rich of course i'm smart of course (laughs) i'm mentally healthy um i feel men do that to some extent too just kind of in different ways um but yeah i think it's a chicken or the egg thing i think if you have those characteristics you're much more likely to be a member of the wealthier class uh, in some cases, because, you, yeah. you know, you avoid, oh, I don't have any empathy. I don't, I, I ascribe all of my actions or all of my uh, outcomes to my own actions, which I think people already uh, have determined is like a much higher predictor for general happiness overall is if you, if you do actually strongly believe that, you know, you are the the author of your, your own story. Um, and so people, yeah, they tend to be really smug and they tend to be very ambitious because they think they can do no wrong and they end up getting more money. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're all over the place now, but um, (laughs) I feel like this was a really illuminating episode for me. I'm not quite sure what it was about, um, but I really... I think it was mostly about what we intended. I think think we touched on those things. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what we talk about next. I have no other ideas in my mind. So listeners, if you have any ideas for the future, we would love to hear them. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, if you talk about class, to me, class is so big. It's so big that, like, of course, I'm going to talk about all these other things. uh, uh, Because I just think it's like, you know, I think it's like one of the most important things that we feel uncomfortable talking about in general. So I'm glad we did talk talk on it for this podcast, at least. Yeah, we should talk about equality and sustainability at some point we did this really cool values exercise that emma um my roommate had done in grad school and there were a list of like 30 personal values and beliefs and they were they were just asked to rank them what's your most important to your least important and they were like Hmm. sustainability community um purpose spirituality um all kinds of wealth 
success, power, um, and just rank them. You have to have a number one, you have to have a number last one. And we kept going back and forth about equality and sustainability. Are these the same thing? And I felt that they were fundamentally very different and others felt, <laughs> yeah, that they were almost the same thing because a belief in equality for all is a belief in sustainability. So that's not this episode, but I would love to talk about that. That's going to loop us right back around into like city planning and all the stuff that I love. So anyway, um, it's been wonderful talking to you, sir. And you again, as well, as always. Um, we will see you next time on window gazing podcast. And if you would like to, uh, visit our website that is in the show notes, you can also find our TikTok handles in the show notes. If you want to watch all of our wonderful TikTok videos and, um, yeah, sir, I hope you have a good day.